soul of an internet machine, a podcast journaling the adventures of a software development team creating new applications for a Belgian client called Electrotest. We are striving to meet the client's requirements, improve process, build great software, have a bit of fun, and maybe make a few new friends. Follow us through our shared adventures. My name is Christina Moore. Find me at the website christinamore.us. So, welcome to Series 2023. This podcast has no sponsorships, accepts no advertising, and represents my individual efforts. Enjoy for free and no annoying interruptions. Episode 2, Data Tables. During the introduction to this project, Demi, our project manager, informed Stevie and me that we are stepping into a new application. I loved and love this idea. Starting from scratch is my favorite. Then, of course, the truth peeked in. I got handed, we got handed, a robust and massive list of data table structures. Literally hundreds of data table definitions written in Oracle's SQL syntax. Syntactically, these tables were perfect. And they were done by a person who possessed expertise in Electrotest's business. He knew and understood the process of doing health and safety inspections in Belgium. And he had decades of experience with Oracle. Therefore, I got pissed off. Right, that makes perfect sense. But now I must justify my frustration and discuss it. Discussing it means admitting I was wrong. The video calls with Dirk became uncomfortable for all participants. Stevie cringed. I behaved badly. From the first instant, I had been impressed with this man's openness, friendliness, professionalism, and his professional honor. Let's look at how software is designed and built. Software is written by people. We invented the entire process. We invented the computer hardware. We invented the programming language. We invented all of the processes involved with creating. When we humans invent stuff, the roots of these inventions get planted deeply into arbitrary and artificial landscapes. I do like my rules and my process. I often fail to recognize what I embrace is both arbitrary and artificial. I am the only one who cares. To clarify, I am the only one who cares about my rules and my process. I don't live and walk around in dark skin. What an ass I can be. Software development follows certain common practices. Software, such as the stuff we write, automates business practices following rules, tracking money, storing documents, and guiding human beings through various workflows. Our objective is to model the process of business. Typically, we engage while an organization undertakes structural changes. Prior to our arrival, people engage in performing their tasks with legacy systems, paper, Excel, other software, or maybe nothing. When we're successful, we have brought these business processes to life on pages within a web-based application. We build an app. We build software that models business processes. As we do this, we simultaneously strive to improve process. We desire to bring consistency to the data and to the process. I love transparency with these processes. One of the long-term projects I worked on with Stevie was to reduce the risk of fraud while managing complex government grants, a product called Tempest Gems. 
How does this happen? It requires a team, maybe two teams. On one side, we have one or more people expert in the business process. They represent the client. On the other side, we have one or more people expert at building software. We negotiate and plan together. To describe this as a linear checklist, it sounds like this. One, someone gathers the client's requirements. Two, we examine the requirements, finding consistencies, inconsistencies, patterns, and flows. Three, we model this back to the client. Four, we all agree this is good enough to start. Five, we make a first draft, proof of concept, that the team can independently evaluate. Six, we improve it. Seven, it faces real data and real users. Eight, we revise. Nine, lather, rinse, repeat. Throughout my career, the jargon and process changes like fashion, waterfall, revised waterfall, iterative, agile, sprints, epic stories. People get super dynamic about these processes and names. Those who have achieved mastery take a more pragmatic approach. My friend and colleague Stevie spent two years on a project with a large multinational bank. They embraced the agile software development process so tightly, it appeared they invested more time in process management than software development. At the end of the day, we must produce a working web page, update data, generate a beautiful and legible report. Nobody gives a hoot about the sprint, the epic, the epoch. Frankly, in the end, Nobody gives a rot about the requirement document. The product matters. Did the client get a tool that works? That's the only measure. No matter how well a team completed tickets in a project management tool such as Jira or others. The goal must always focus on creating, building, and supporting a product. Some teams get too wrapped up in the management of, the tracking of, the evaluating, and the minutia of team management aspects. Meetings called stand-ups have become so long and so routine that people sit down. We originally called them stand-ups to keep them short. Hold a scrum or a huddle, share a quick word on immediate goals, then get to work. Standing once reinforced the need for brevity. Instead of getting client requirements in December as a means of starting the project, I got handed hundreds of data table definitions. Oh, what did I just say about pragmatic versus dogmatic? Instead of collecting business requirements, workflows, and business objectives, I got handed some intermediate product out of context. We skipped the normal order of a process that I had invested a career in mastering. Furthermore, someone took a job from me I enjoyed. The process of designing tables feels like laying the foundation for a new building. We start projects there. Furthermore, I believe designing data structures follows an earlier step of gathering requirements and requirement documents. Okay, call them stories or epics. I got the results of step two without any hint of what happened to step one. Years ago, long in the early days of my career, I would slip away to the yacht club to race small sailboats about three days a week. I read my sailing magazines and I had an office window that just barely let me see the sailboat harbor. One of the sailing magazines had a cartoon drawing of a small pirate boy. Picture a schoolboy with pirate clothing and a parrot. He is standing at a blackboard writing 100 times 
Rape, pillage, then burn. Rape, pillage, then burn. That image reminds me that order does matter. You can't burn the village first. In an army, people occasionally recognize that some bad leaders get things organized in the wrong order. Fire, aim, load. It just can't be done that way. In my human brain, I believe, based on decades of experience, that the design of data tables follows the process of documenting business flows and understanding the user's needs. Here, I held a series of text documents with the phrase, create table, written 132 times. Picture yourself building a chicken coop. You think about the space and what the chickens need. Then someone arrives with all of the materials pre-cut. What I expected to draw and build, you know, my coop, must then use these pre-cut bits of wood from somebody else's design. Furthermore, for this project, we got no instructions and no plan. Just the raw materials, just the structure of 132 data tables. The core fabric of a software application. This is wrong, screams my brain. First, we get a few requirements, etc. Step A goes before step B and step C. I should not admit, but earlier in my career, I tried saying, rape, pillage, then burn, in a few meetings to emphasize the value of sequential order. Learning to say first A, then B, appears less offensive to others, except for the idiots who skip A and put B first or don't even care. Poor Dirk. He had no idea of the sin he committed. Don't worry, I made sure he understood by being both rude and inhospitable. The lovely man committed a second sin by failing to read my mind and not knowing the standards our team had in place. I'll return to this sin in a bit. Okay, not a sin. And Dirk is a good man with good intentions and good ideas. He's smart and, well, good looking too. But to say that in a work environment is as inappropriate as my small pirate boy story. With my experience, I could read these data tables and read the data represented in other formats. I could reverse engineer the process. I could do this while simultaneously seeing flaws in the not a design. How? How could I look at hundreds of data tables and do this? Accounting systems, invoice generations, inventory systems have been around for decades. The architecture seems consistent. They are based on analog processes well established by accounting traditions. The buzzwords are ERP and CRM. Enterprise Resource Planning and Customer Resource Management or Contact Resource Management. These systems date back to the earliest days of commercial software. The real test for a computer system, and I put computer in quotes, followed this progression. Number one, calendar calculations, including celestial positions. These calculations helped ocean navigators know their position on the globe. Think Astrolabe, even Stonehenge. Estimate eclipses and moon phases and seasons. Number two, census tabulations. That's where Herman Hollerith made his mark at the turn of the 20th century. His thing eventually became IBM. Three, ballistic trajectories. How much energy does it take to launch a thing from here to there with precision? Hey, it was World War II and we wanted to hit a few targets. 
This stuff tied to the post-war space race. During the space race, we used early computers to aim a rocket at the moon. Number four, accounting. Customers have told me that paper ledgers and pen is good enough. And I live in an old traditional town in Vermont. I gave up counting the number of times I have heard, it's been good enough for 300 years, not sure why I need to be doing it differently. So, except for our ancient volunteer fire chief, most people view balancing a bank account with an abacus as quaint and archaic. Some still use paper-based ledger books, except for our fire department who adopted QuickBooks in 2018 when the fire chief's ex-wife stopped managing the funds. I deeply appreciate Dirk's willingness to listen to me and attempt to adopt our team's long-held standards. We still clashed, and I proved myself chilly and unfriendly about his genuine efforts to incorporate our techniques with his. This ability to read data table structure and infer relationships with other tables is one skill I have. The second is that I can see gaps and holes in the logic. Many of us have this ability within our realms of expertise. I know doctors who can look at a person and guess that they have diabetes based on the impact the disease has on the body, or emphysema, or congestive heart failure, or a stroke. My friend Andy, who has farmed all of his life and served New England as a professional shearer and herd manager, he can look at a sheep and diagnose issues from a meter away. We call this expertise. I am expert at seeing data structures and workflows for back-office business functions, such as managing funds, managing documents, managing process. I am terrible at other things. Like Andy and some physicians, the important elements jump forward. To do that, I possess a mental image for standard or common or healthy. I compare what I see against what I expect. Sounds super grandiose, even pompous, doesn't it? I can see benefits and flaws in data structures by reading 5,000 lines of table structure definitions. I would expect an experienced radiologist to see a fractured rib in a millisecond or two. I would expect a tissue pathologist to see cancerous cells on a microscope slide. I cheat. Our team's standards and practices allow me to cheat. We incorporate visual and logical patterns into each effort. Stand by for a few minutes of geeking. What is a data table in Oracle? Data tables or organizations of data arranged typically in columns and rows. We call rows records occasionally. Record or row contains a set of data related to a precise element, typically uniquely. We call the columns fields, sometimes even page items, as they are data entry items on a web page. Because of the nature of a relational database, the data elements in the table can be subjected to rigorous tests and validation processes. We can specify that a field be not null, meaning that data are required, always. We can specify default values such as Y for guess or one or zero or whatever. For example, most of our tables have a field called active. We set the default to Y for yes, and we require some data in there by setting the field slash column to not null. We could go further 
limiting the data values to be either Y or N. Furthermore, one table can relate to another table. I've been discussing invoices since starting this series about Electrotest. One creates an invoice, an invoice sent to a customer. One customer gets one or more invoices. Therefore, we create rules in the invoice table that says the customer link must be populated and may not be null. The customer link must always be connected to or related to an actual customer. With these rules, we maintain the integrity of the data. Data elements that refer to other data are required by Oracle and other databases to maintain the referential integrity. This power is amazing. This power differentiates our glorious world from spreadsheets, such as Excel. Listen, I use spreadsheets. Barely a workday passes without me opening it. Excel is a spreadsheet. Oracle is a database. Oracle has a few spreadsheety features, and Excel has a few databasey features. The tools remain distinct. Vive la différence. I love writing my Oracle and technical blogs. I love training new folks on our team. Yet rarely do I get to start with this fundamental discussion of how data are stored. I invested time in learning these concepts. Oracle and other database vendors invested years in improving these features. What power can we derive from creating a formal link between an invoice and the customer to whom it is sent? First, the rules ensure that every invoice has a valid customer. You'll hear in later episodes that we interact with an external system where we have no such confidence. Database rules can be created such that if a user tries to delete a customer, the user is not permitted because an invoice exists. Or the software developer can create a rule that says, if you delete a customer, then delete all related invoices. Imagine an invoice or a sales receipt from your favorite store. Given I live in Vermont, the home of Ben & Jerry's ice cream, I'll make believe I visit their store. I buy an ice cream for me, for my husband, and for our Rachel. My receipt, my invoice, has three lines on it. One line for each of the separate ice cream treats. In this case, my invoice has three lines. We have a relationship between the invoice now containing three detailed lines. Each of the detailed lines must store a reference or a pointer to that original invoice. In our lingo, the customer is apparent to the invoice. The invoice record is apparent to three invoice lines. With the right rules created in the database, if I delete the customer, the invoice gets deleted, as does the three invoice lines. The delete process cascades down through all of the relationships. Of course, we can decide to have a rule that says if a customer has an invoice, that customer may never be deleted. We do not permit the cascade delete. We use the rules of the database to reinforce operational rules within the business. These are simple and common examples. Complexity follows fundamentals. What are these links between the invoice and the parental record or row for a customer? We call them keys. The imagery is perfect. A key is specific and unique. Imagine the customer table. The first field on our table would be the customer's primary key. It gets assigned automatically. It is unique within that customer table. No other customer can share that unique key. 
With a unique key, we can let the users change every or any element of data for that customer. Name change, no problem. Tax identification number change, no problem. As long as that unique key remains the same, the database remembers this customer is always this customer. We call this unique key for each row the primary key. It is the number one unique identifier for the customer. It is a unique ID to some, although I tend not to use ID as a term. ID lacks precision. Know what our team calls the primary key? PK. The first field in the customer table is called customer PK. No matter where I see that phrase in code, in the application, dropped on the floor, stuck on the refrigerator, it is always and precisely one thing. All ambiguity has been removed. It is the primary key for customer. It is unique. The primary key may be ugly, lengthy, a jumble of numbers and letters, and, but it is the number one handle for picking up and manipulating customer data. The imagery of a key is perfect. If I have the customer PK, I can immediately find and unlock, in a figurative sense, the customer's data. It is a reliable pointer. The Oracle database, as well as the database from other vendors, uses rules and tools to ensure the values are unique. We can have them generated automatically. We never have to show the client it exists, although we often do. Returning to our invoice example, we now know we have a table called invoice. What sort of fields are in the invoice table? Sure, you know them, don't you? Just look at any sales receipt or an invoice. Invoice date, invoice amount, payment terms, due date, purchase order reference, maybe your memorandum or note to the customer. Nice, concise summary of the entire invoice. With our team, the very first field in our invoice table is the invoice PK. Right, I know you already knew that. But do you know what the second field in the invoice table is? Oh, pause. The second most important information in the invoice table is the link to the customer. Therefore, we put the customer link as the second field. If I am in the customer table, then my unique identifier for the customer is the customer PK. If I am in the invoice table, then my unique identifier for the invoice is invoice PK, the primary key. Then if I want to reference another table's primary key, then that reference becomes my foreign key. To restate, my invoice table has a foreign key pointing to the customer PK. We abbreviate the foreign key FK. When I use the customer's key in another table, it is called customer FK. The first field in my invoice table is invoice PK. The second field in that invoice table is customer FK. If I see customer FK in code, on a page in an application, stuck to the floor, or it falls on my desk, which of course it cannot do, I instantly know that this data field is formally, permanently, and linked to the customer primary key, the customer PK. When software developers develop standards like these, we have simplified these structures. The rules become visible. Reading 5,000 lines of data table definitions, I do not have to memorize anything. When I find a table called invoice, then I expect the primary key first, 
the most important foreign keys, then following in a neat and logical order. We start simple, then proceed to complicated. What foreign keys should an invoice have in this environment? Customer foreign key? Payment terms? Invoice language. What language do we print the invoice in? Invoice method? Email? Postal service? The phase or status of the invoice? Draft, finalized, paid, etc. We create rules within the database to make sure that the users may not generate an invoice for ElectroTest in Portuguese. Of course, we could do them in Portuguese, but the client doesn't want Portuguese. Their clients may get invoices in French or Dutch. So, that is also a rule we enforce with database rules. Your choices are limited to French or Dutch. Unless, of course, your development staff speaks and writes in English, and we snuck English in for ourselves. We have tables where every field has a constraint or a rule. This field must be filled in. This field is defaulted to Y or today's date. This field must reference a foreign key. In December of 2021, Dirk handed over 5,000 lines of table structure definitions. He heard my bit of a rant regarding field name conventions and table naming conventions, so he tried to superimpose our team standards on his work. He did the best he could and came close. Every table has a primary key called PK, and it was in the first line. Regrettably, the name did not include the table name. Instead of invoice PK, it was called PK. In 5,000 lines where there were 132 fields named PK, I could not tell one PK from another PK. If PK fell on my desk or I saw it in code, I would have to dig just a little bit further to discover whose PK this is. Whereas invoice PK is unique. I have a table called invoice and that table has a primary key. That primary key is invoice PK. I love that degree of precision. We removed ambiguity. Additionally, as I read through table structures, I developed the web-like structures that connect these data. The invoice details or invoice lines related to their parent invoice with the invoice FK, invoice foreign key. The invoice data is related to the customer with the customer FK, and on and on. When done well, anyone can read through a table and know which fields are related to which tables due to the naming convention. Okay, friends, time for an argument. A huge number of professionals in this industry use ID instead of the phrase PK and FK. Ultimately, the argument between these standards resembles the sort of arguments nobody enjoys, such as which religion is better, or which of the gods is the true god, or who makes the best wine. It is stupid and non-productive. If a system works and works well, then who cares? But, of course, I am right. Not true. I am not right. There is a story of Steven Spielberg building and using a consistent team year over year, decade after decade. Teams develop shorthands for complex concepts. When you reach for something or someone, it is there. The purpose of a team's rules reinforce consistency, therefore quality improves. One of the team may chat on another asking for a rubber duck. Hey, Stevie, will you be my rubber duck for a sec? I am asking her to act as a sounding board while I talk through a process in spoken or written language. 
so says Wikipedia. Another request may be for four eyes. A request made when engaging in a complicated high-risk maneuver that may go horribly wrong. You check your partner before making each step. Another shorthand phrase is PST, meaning primary, secondary, and tertiary. For each evolution, an experienced practitioner must have a primary plan, plan A, a backup plan, plan B, and some way of completely bailing out and recovering, a contingency plan, or plan C. We must be free to challenge each other with the question, what are your PSTs? As I write this episode, young Eli struggles with writing code that copies data related to an inspection. Two of the tables were created by our project leader, Dimmy. He came so, so very close to following the standards, but missed. Field names and tables names lacked our team's consistency, that perfect symmetry Stevie, Eli, and I depend on. It slowed Eli by at least one hour. He had to keep all of the table structures visible while writing the code. Two tables have been named similarly. We forget the differences between the two tables. Second, one of the table's primary key was typed differently when it became a foreign key in another table. My father, when talking about writing, said, maintain parallel construction. Parallel construction techniques lends to punchier writing. Picture a dynamic preacher delivering a sermon with rhythm. You can anticipate. The preacher pulls you along, or so I recall, been a while since I stepped into a church for a sermon. We create these patterns deep within the buried infrastructure of our code for the power it brings later in construction. These techniques improve efficiency. These techniques reduce the risk of errors. You don't accidentally refer to the wrong foreign key, the wrong table. Let me share one example of these consistencies, or rather, inconsistencies. During the years, I implemented several rules. The first of the rules is that all tables are named in their singular. I totally and completely agree that the invoice table stores multiple invoices. Frankly, it stores all invoices. Therefore, if the table contains multiple invoices, shouldn't we name the table invoices with an S and plural? Certainly, go right ahead. As the cool kids say, you do you. The customer table stores all of the customers, so call the table customers with an S and plural. Suddenly, every table has an S on the end. The result is that every table name just added one letter, the same letter, the letter S. If we name the table customers, then the primary key is customer PK or customers PK. If the table is customers with an S, then the primary key ought to have an S, resulting in customer's PK. Step to a new perspective. Look at the data from one row, from one record. The primary key relates to a single customer. I'd argue that the name ought to be customer PK, in the singular. To maintain parallel construction, call the table customer. Why not? Don't add the S. What do you gain? What does it cost? Furthermore, you shorten the typing of hundreds of tables by one letter. That can be more than a 10% savings in typing. Our friends at Oracle introduced me to this trap and these inconsistencies. 
They gave us a virtual table or a memory resident table called Apex Collection. When you add elements to a row in an Apex Collection, the word collection is always singular. The functions and procedures that manipulate these collections use the singular Apex Collection. My fingers get really good at typing these phrases. Typing and spelling long ago passed from a cognitive skill to muscle memory skills. Later in the code, I must write a query to extract data from an Apex collection. Suddenly, the word is plural. I must write select from Apex collections with an S in the end. I never use the S when building the data set. I add data to an Apex collection, singular. I delete data from an Apex collection, singular. But when I query from Apex Collections for my lonely singular set of data, the phrase becomes plural. It becomes as simple as how fast we type and how frequently we make mistakes while typing. When I forget the letter S on Apex Collections, I compile the code. Oracle blows an error. I click to find the error. I fix the error, then I compile. It is the same friggin' thing. Apex Collection and Apex Collections, except for that one letter. That one letter cost the client a minute or two of wasted time. Maintaining parallel construction permits folks like me to fly with confidence. I don't need to look up in some dictionary or reference material to confirm the spelling of a field or the like. Similarly, we developed a rule with tables and field names. No abbreviations. I implemented that rule When we had a team member from South Asia and one from Canada who's fluent in five languages, including Czech, part of our team spoke Spanish as their primary language at home, everybody abbreviated differently. Date became DT or DTE or DATE. Someone abbreviated invoice to INVC, removing the vowels. Another abbreviated invoice to INV. Another person decided not to abbreviate the spelling of invoice. Nothing like stopping to look it up. Oh, gee, how did we do it this time? Stop it. It costs time to look up the answer. It costs us emotionally when we face our own mistakes or we must reevaluate mistakes someone else made that causes us to trip. Just stop it. But INV is shorter than invoice. Yes, it is. Now, use your phone as a stopwatch. Tell me which is faster. I need to find the invoice number. Is invoice abbreviated or is it written out fully? Let me stop and go look. I confirm. Now I type. It gets more costly if the phrase varies frequently between tables. Here it is INV and here it is invoice and here it is INVC. When varieties exist, we provide a pathway for bugs. Bugs are bad. Frustrations while coding are bad. Time remains precious. There I am, ranting about data table structures like a proper geek. Possibly what I just said made no sense, and you ran away from me, never listening to another episode. Oh well, ciao Pazano, grazie mille. Possibly, you're a customer looking for a team. I posit that a modern-day, non-technical person ought to recognize good thinking and logical thinking in every step we make, even those fundamental building blocks. Clear thinking results in clear code. Good thinking results in good code. I expect elegance. I expect symmetry. I expect to see architecture in our work. I expect to see the beauty of the Brooklyn Bridge on a page. 
Our brains love patterns because they often reinforce the strength and resiliency of our work. I currently spend hours per week watching craftspeople make things on YouTube. A Spanish clog maker, an Irish stone carver, a woman from Cologne rebuilding a 120-year-old home. While a timber frame house displays its own structural beauty, you ought to find that same thing with well-crafted software. Sorry, Dirk, that I got frustrated. Those 5,000 lines of data table structures without the client's requirements yielded frustration. As my little pirate boy cartoon never wrote, first A, then B, then C. We are building tools that reinforce process. Our response involved skipping step A, the first step. Let's all skip ahead to B. Here are the tables. Now build a system. Bedankt, mein friend. Dirk, let me also apologize for my treatment of the tables. I acknowledge you tried and did well to come close to our standards. I never thank you properly for that. The unstated component of my frustration resulted from the constraint these 5,000 lines of data table definitions placed on us. The document got handed to me with an order, execute. I granted myself the authority to bring them closer to our team standards. My flexibility was curtailed. I had been told that the client approved of these as is. Therefore, you must use them. Step one, be damned. Context and requirement, be damned. Start here, move quickly. I also secretly knew that the client had spent time and money striving to create software systems to resolve their problems in the past. I rapidly, privately, secretly deduced that these approved tables resulted from earlier failed efforts at building custom software. My team and I had been mandated to build a structure on a foundation that I suspected came from past failures, not my foundation. The tables and structures may be perfect. Maybe the data structures caused the past failures. Maybe the data structures were clones of past failed attempts. I could not know in the first weeks of the project. I did not know the client and at that point had no access to the client. I'm a software developer, a geek, working from a lovely home office in the rural mountains of Vermont. Stevie and I, as the pros from Dover, have been called in to take over. We possess decades of real-world experience in managing billions in financial transactions. We've managed terabytes of digital documents with an Oracle database. Suddenly, with this new project, we got told to use these structures from the previous team. Instead of recognizing the conflict and verbalizing it to the growing team, I got all human about it. I snarled and snapped. You suppose I'll learn to improve my interpersonal skills someday? I haven't yet. That's for damn sure. In fact, Dirk's work was good and accurate enough for us to start. We delivered a preliminary model and framework to the client by the first week of January 2022. I might have been rude and horrible, but we delivered a remarkable framework and the first pass at the application before the first week of January 2022. In the next episode, I will explore how we built our framework and created an application based on nearly 100 tables in a few weeks. I attribute that rapid progress to Dirk's early work and our team's expertise and skills with Oracle Apex. See you next time.
Be well, do good, and have fun. The Soul of an Internet Machine is a copyrighted production of Fire Media LLC 2023. All rights reserved. You can find me at my website, christinamore.us. Email is okay. Christina at christinamore.us. For now, I am still on Twitter with at Seymour underbar SP. That's Charlie Mike. C-M-O-O-R-E underbar SP. Thank you.